You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless what he has already blessed this service as we prepare our hearts for John 17. Father, we do thank you for what you have done definitively, supremely, sufficiently in the Son of God, securing salvation for those who would trust in him. We want to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to magnify your worth in the face of the Son this morning through the preaching of this word. We've already seen a baptism. We're grateful that you're a saving God. We kick off the Lottie Moon Christmas offering season. We're reminded that many people don't know that yet, and we have a role to play to that. We pray that we'll be found faithful. We also thank you for our veterans. We recognize, Lord, that we need a military. You don't need a military, but we do. In this fallen world, it's one of your means by which you restrain evil. And we are grateful for the men and women who have served, sacrificed uh, for the good, the common good of uh, the United States. And we pray that they would know that we love them. And we now pray, Lord, that as we come into this passage, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to behold, all that needs to be beheld and heard in, in this passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this year is the 400th birthday of Blaise Pascal. He was a genius French philosopher, mathematician, scientist, writer, uh, and inventor. Remarkable man. As a child prodigy in Paris, his grasp of mathematics led to his involvement with the Academy of Science, where he interacted with all the intellectual elites of the day. Um, at age 15, he was already writing books and developing theorems. I had even, I had to look that word up. And he was writing theorems that was staggering the imagination of uh, the intellectual scholars and elites of the day. Get this, as a teen, as a teenager, he invented the calculator. That's right. So our teens today can use the calculator to do math. He invented the calculator, and other inventions led to the discovery of the barometer, the vacuum pump, the air compressor, the syringe, and the hydraulic press. That's Blaise Pascal. And yet, with all of his genius, with all of his fame and success, he was miserable. He understood this, that he, he was lost. He was spiritually dead. And then one day, at the age of 31, on, in November of 1654, 369 years this month, he picked up the Bible and providentially read John 17, the passage that we find ourselves in this morning. And by the time he had gotten to verse 3, 
he was gloriously converted to the Lord Jesus Christ as he beheld his glory in that passage. Upon his conversion, immediately upon his conversion, he picked up a pen and began to write his thoughts. Here's what he wrote. In the year of grace, 1654, on Monday, the 23rd of November, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the philosophers and not of the scholars, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, joy, 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 tears of joy. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus Christ, let me never be separated from him. Converted at the age of 31, he would go on to live only eight more years. But in those last eight years, he became a significant writer and impactor for the Christian faith. The day he died, they found sewed inside his coat pocket these very words I just shared with you. He never wanted to lose the memory of that moment when he was first converted. The impact John 17 had on Blaise Pascal is John's goal in writing it. In John 20, verse 31, he says, I write these things to you so that you may believe. And remember, belief is more than just intellectual assent. It's fire in the bones. So that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing, you would have life, eternal life in his name. Indeed, the glory of God in the face of Christ through his cross and his crown, that is his coronation to the right hand of the Father, was what transformed Blaise Pascal. And this is exactly what Jesus is praying for. It's what he's praying for us. And this has benefited the world for 2,000 years. Now, this is actually Jesus' third prayer in the Gospel of John. The first two prayers were very short. We can pray short prayers as well, right? The first prayer we see Jesus praying was at the tomb of Lazarus. The second prayer, that was John 11. And in John 12, when the Greeks came and said, we wish to see Jesus, he recognized that given now that the Gentiles were streaming to him, that the hour had come for his death. And there he prayed again, Father, glorify yourself. Well, this is the third prayer in the Gospel of John. It's Jesus's longest prayer recorded in the New Testament. This is actually the Lord's Prayer. Jesus praying, and it has three parts. We're gonna look at the first part today. First part is verses one to five, Jesus prays for himself. 
In the second part, verses 6 to 19, he prays for his present disciples, the 11 disciples that he's about to commission. And then starting in verse 20 to, to 26, he prays for every single believer who would ever believe in his name. This prayer is actually a summary of all that John has given us so far. Uh, a few themes, Jesus' obedience to the Father. Do you realize that it's not just his cross who saves us, that saves us, it's his obedience, his obedient life that plays a significant role in our salvation. Jesus' obedience to the Father. The glorification of the Father through the cross and the crown of the Lord Jesus Christ is another central theme that we have seen in the Gospel of John. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ, the choosing of the disciples out of the world and their mission to the world and their unity modeled on the unity in the Godhead itself. But given the fact that the word glory or glorify is seen eight times in this prayer, and given the fact that the word glory or glorify is seen 42 times in the Gospel of John, perhaps this is one of the most central themes, the glory of God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how he begins the prayer. Jesus prays, ironically, for his glorification in the cross. Look with me in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, what are these words? It began in chapter 13 at the upper room as he transforms that first Lord's Supper into, or the, the last Passover meal into the first Lord's Supper as he washes the disciples' feet and extends all the way through the end of chapter 16. He says, when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So he's praying with his eyes open. You see this kind of phrase found throughout the Psalms. I lift up my eyes to the hills. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, it's impossible to know the location of the prayer. But we do know that just before this prayer, he was with his disciples. He was instructing his disciples. They've likely made their way out of the upper room and they've been making their way to the Kidron Valley. And we also know right after the prayer, if you'll look in chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And so they were with him just before the prayer, and they are with him right after the prayer. And so we can strongly infer that Jesus prays this prayer, which takes up all of chapter 17, within the hearing of the disciples. Of course, that would have been intentional on his part. It's not to show off. It's that the things he is praying, they need to hear. Not only for their benefit, because they're about to go through the fire. They need to hear it for our benefit. 
and it has benefited the church for 2,000 years. And what they hear first is that he prays, Father, the hour has come. Now, this is the last of nine references to the hour. This is not merely the hour that Jesus has been preparing for. It's the hour the believing people of God have been anticipating since the promise of Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the servant. This is the hour of fulfilling all the prophecies concerning Messiah, all the types, all the pictures, all the problems of the Old Testament that can only be resolved by the Messiah. This is the hour in which all the sign miracles have led to and, and pointed to. And coming to this hour, there's really just one central petition. You see it there in verse 1. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify the Father. And so, the Son's glorification will be for the Father's glorification. And let me just tell you this. Anything that glorifies God benefits his people. Always. Whatever benefits God, glorifies God benefits us. Now, let's make an important distinction here. The distinction is this. When we think about the glory of God and glorifying God, one is a noun and one is a verb. The glory of God, the noun, is the external manifestation. The external manifestation or expression of God's beauty, of his perfections, of his being. The glory of God is the outward shining of God's inward being. That's the glory of God. But when we talk about God being glorified, that's a verb. We're talking about the right response to his glory revealed. And so the glory of God is his hidden riches displayed, okay? His hidden riches displayed. Glorifying God is his hidden riches celebrated, so you see the distinction, but they, they always travel together. And so when Jesus prays to be glorified, it means that not only are his, is his beauty and his riches displayed and beheld, and that's my prayer for us, but they are properly celebrated. Now remember, John had written in the prologue, in John 1.18, that Jesus, let me give you the literal translation, is the exegesis of the Father. That's where we get the word biblical exegesis. He is the exegesis of the Father. Here's what John 1.18 tells us. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. You see that? The only God who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, the Son of God, has made him known. He has exegeted him. 
And so you see equality in the Godhead and yet distinction in the persons of the Godhead. But here is the crazy irony. Jesus is praying that the Son be glorified so that the Father may be glorified and he's about to be hung on a cross. The cross was a shameful way to die. And not only is he about to be hung on a cross, he's about to be cursed of God. Remember Paul writes in Galatians 3, 13 that, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So think of it this way. In order for God to answer Jesus' prayer that he be glorified on the cross, he has to turn that curse on its head so that the beauty and the splendor and the perfections of God are somehow displayed on the cross. So how does that dynamic work? I mean, that really is an important question. Well, verse 5 is going to help us answer that, and we'll get to that in, in a few moments. But for now, we need to understand that we cannot sufficiently, we will never comprehensively, but we cannot sufficiently understand how glorious God is without the cross. Okay? Because on the cross, here's what we see. We behold the justice of God. The wages of sin is death. Sinners deserve death. So on the cross, we see God is faithful to who he is as a just God. We see the righteousness of God on the cross. Okay? And we see his wrath, which is his holy response to sin. So we see the righteousness. We see the justice and the wrath of God on the cross. But we also see on the cross grace and mercy because that's what we deserve. And Jesus Christ, the substitute, took what we deserve in our place. We also see the wisdom of God because he devised a plan on the cross where he could be just and the justifier, Romans 3.36, through the substitutionary, penal substitute of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's how the Father will be glorified in the Son, ironically, through the most shameful act in history, the cross, where he turns it on its head, demonstrating all that he is as our God for us and our salvation all for our worship, that we may celebrate his glory. That's how we glorify him. We respond to his splendor and perfections as revealed supremely through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ for the conversion of sinners. And so Jesus begins this prayer by praying that the, that the, for the, his glorification in the cross. That brings us to the second part of this prayer where he prays for his glorification in our conversion. Again, look at the second part of verse one. He says, Father, the hour, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since, 
So he's continuing the thought, verse 2. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. So he gives the, the son authority to give eternal life. Get this, to all whom you have given him. Say what? For all whom you have given him. And so, in short, the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father by exercising the authority that the Father has given to him to bestow eternal life on those whom the Father has given him. I'm just repeating what that verse says. Now, eternal life is important to, in, in the Gospel of John. You see it 17 times. You think that's a theme? Yes, it is. 17 times we read about eternal life. I mean, you think about that. Um, there's also an eternal death, an eternal judgment. If we really believe these realities, it would inform every waking moment of our lives, and we'd even dream about it. Uh, we're talking about eternity future, all right? 17 times it is, it is mentioned. Eternal life means to prevail over death and live abundantly forevermore in eternity future. It means to prevail over death and to live abundantly forevermore in eternity future. And the reason sinners like us can actually have this life is that Jesus Christ, and Adam mentioned this just a moment ago, he has overcome. He has freed us from the curse of divine judgment by becoming a curse for us. Indeed, that's what he's referring to in John 5, 24, when he says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Now you say, well, Jesus hasn't been crucified then. Yes, but it's, he is on his way to the cross, and those who were saved before the cross were saved on debit, or credit, rather. They, they were saved on what would be put into their account by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us on this side of the cross are saved by debit. We are saved by what's already been put into our account. But we're, we cross over from death to life because Jesus died in our place so that we might have eternal life. As well, it also means, eternal life means revitalizing life-giving power, which is at work in us forevermore. You'll never lose it. That's what Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, Verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It also means the hope of a future resurrection. Again, in John 6, verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Notice, it's looking on the Son. It is believing the Son. What does it mean to look on Him? It means you are fixing your attention, your focus on your only hope 
for salvation. And those who do shall have eternal life. And he says, I will raise him up on the last day. That's eternal life. Now, recipients here are described, recipients of eternal life, that is, are described as those that the Father has given the Son. Of course, this in no way demeans human responsibility. Uh, we've already seen in John 6, 40, it's those who look to Christ and believe in Christ who have the hope of resurrection life. In that verse in John uh, 3, 16, that we, many of us have memorized, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. We have a human responsibility, but we also need to understand that our human responsibility is completely compatible with divine sovereign grace. There are some who so emphasize the sovereignty of God that it makes humans into puppets. And there's some who so emphasize human responsibility that they undermine divine sovereignty, which is one of the lordship attributes of God. Now, we don't have to understand the mystery. Do you understand the mystery of God in one, God in three? Do you understand the mystery that the Bible is a fully human document and a fully divine document? Do you understand the mystery that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man in one person? No. None of the great mysteries of the, or, or doctrines of the faith can be fully comprehended by finite and fallible beings. But the reality is, Jesus is saying here, without in any way dismissing the importance of believing in him, looking to him, that the Father has given him a people. Now, we're used to thinking of the Father, Father giving Jesus as a gift to us. That's a gift. It's the gift of all gifts. Praise the Lord for that gift. But Jesus is also saying that Father has given the Son a gift as well. He has given the, the Son a people. And notice, I want you to notice throughout this book that has been a theme. That's why we cannot ignore this. We cannot ignore this. I, I would have to confess sin to you if I ignored this, even if it disrupts some people's theology. The fact is, none of our theology is inerrant and infallible. The Word of God is. But our theology is in need of sanctification, and it needs to be subject to the Word of God. So all the way back in John chapter 6, here's what Jesus said. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 37. What do you do with that? Do you ignore it? Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Later in John 17, we'll see this next time. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. It's a common thing. Verse 9, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me. 
Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. And so when Jesus prays that the Father glorify him, he does it on the basis of the Father's plan to give all authority to the Son to secure salvation, eternal life for those whom the Father has given him. And this eternal life has an ultimate goal. Notice in verse 3, and this is eternal life. Lest you wonder what it is, that they know you. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. This is eternal life, Jesus says. Jeremiah tells us that it's in knowing him that God delights in us. It's in knowing him. That's his goal for us. In Jeremiah 9, here's what he says in verse 23. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. But let me tell you, compared to God's wisdom, our wisdom, Blaise Pascal's wisdom is, is that of a creature. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's what we're to boast in. That's what God is impressed with. We're impressed with other things. We're impressed with might, aren't we? We're impressed with riches, aren't we? We're impressed with human wisdom, aren't we? God's not impressed with that. But he delights in those who know and understand me. Get this, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love. Now, that word is hesed. Um, what is hesed? It is, God's, it is God's commitment to his name. You can say it this way. God's commitment to his person that is, he will not compromise who he is in loving us. And it's his commitment to his promises to save sinners. So how can God be committed to his person, righteous and holy and just, and yet stay faithful to his person and love the such as us, the likes of us? It will require a substitute. It will require the Messiah it's the Lord who practices his steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Notice, for in these things I delight. In these things. And Jesus makes clear that knowing God and therefore experiencing eternal life is inseparable from knowing Jesus Christ. He is the way to the Father. Why? Because as I've said, only Jesus exegetes the Father. To, to know God, you must see and behold Jesus. That's why we do missions. It's not just to keep us busy. It's because the only way to know God is to know the Son. And 3.2 billion people have never even heard the Son's name. He is the one who explains the Father. He said in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why is that? Because as Hebrews 1, 3 says, he is the radiance. Aaron read that this morning. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature and glory. And only Jesus 
can secure the way to the Father. And it will come through his cross and his crown. That brings us to the last part of this passage. So we've seen Jesus praise for his glorification in the cross, in the conversion of sinners. And then finally, we see he prays for his glorification in his coronation. That is where he will be crowned as king. All right? Crown him with many crowns because that is who he is. He is king. Look with me in verse 4. It begins, though, with his obedience. I glorified you on earth. That's past tense. He's looking back on his 33 years. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus came in the world to carry out the work that God the Father gave him to do. All the way back in chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food, may it be said of us, certainly it can never be said of us as it was said of Jesus, but may he be our example here and our resource to do this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. And he did. Frederick Godet, commentator, says it this way. He does not perceive in his life either any evil committed or any good omitted. Wow, who can say that? The duty of each hour has been perfectly fulfilled. There has been in this human life, which he has now behind him, not only no spot, but no deficiency. Amen, indeed. Because when we stand before God, you will need his perfect righteousness. You will need it. So this is a glorious truth that we see here. In John chapter 5, verse 30, he had said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And when Christ is being formed in you, this will be increasingly the testimony of your life as well. But it won't be the ground of your salvation because you never could attain to what Jesus attained, perfect obedience to the Father. Now, I want you to keep in mind, in 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 40, 45 and 47, the apostle Paul distinguishes between two men. He said, the first man is Adam. And he said, the second man is Jesus. Paul seems to be saying, there's only really two men on the earth. And everybody else is represented by one of these two men. All of us are born in Adam. He represents all of humanity. We are sinners in Adam. But those who trust in the second man has his record imputed to them. The record where he can say, I have accomplished your will. I have done your will on the earth. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do. He came to undo what the first Adam did by bringing sin into the world. And Paul writes in Romans 5, 19, for as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. Was there a literal Adam? 
Absolutely. There wasn't a literal Adam. There's no gospel. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see? Now, the authority on earth that was entrusted to the first Adam will now be regained by the second man and the last Adam. And that's why what Jesus says here, you and I never could, and Adam could not either. And now that's all that's left. He's just hours before the cross. All that's left before his coronation is king. Now, he is eternally the king as the second uh, person of the Godhead. But we're talking about king in the sense that he is now going to be king as the victorious God-man. All that's left before his coronation as king is for him to utter on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. That will be an answer to what he prays in verse 5 as we close out this passage. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so in the prologue, we see Jesus introduced as the word who was with God in the beginning. And now he is praying to be restored to that place and all the glory attaching to it. So Jesus here is speaking of the kind of glory that was temporarily eclipsed, okay? He still had that essential glory as, as God, the second person of the Godhead, but it's been eclipsed by his human nature, just like we have solar eclipses. Uh, it doesn't take away the, 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 the light of the sun. It just, we can't see it. It has been temporarily eclipsed by his incarnation, and now he is praying for his splendor to be restored that he shared with the Father in eternity past, but with one qualification, I might add. Jesus' coronation will not be merely a restoration of his essential glory. There will be an advance because now he will have the glory of the God-man the victorious God-man. And with that, with that crowning, with that coronation that will happen in his resurrection from the grave and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, with that coronation, the Father will signal he is satisfied with his son's work for sinners. The only question that remains, are you satisfied with his work? Are you resting in his work? Is that what you're hoping in? Is that where you find your identity? In the finished work of the Son of God, the coronated, enthroned King, the saving King. If you are this morning, it's because... This is what happened to you, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. But God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts. It's because God's shone in your hearts. He shined the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ in your heart. That's why you are resting in the finished work of Jesus this morning. But maybe you need to be reminded and maybe you need to ask the Lord to enlighten your eyes to, to see this light even clearer. It'll inform everything. It'll inform what you're worried about today. It'll inform what you're worried about today and depressed about, what you're discouraged about. It will inform every struggle you have. It will inform your marriage. It'll inform your parenting. It'll inform the way you do school. If you play ball, it'll inform the way you play ball. It'll inform everything because God shone that light. He, sh he shined that light in your heart, giving you eyes to behold his glory in the face of his son. But maybe this morning you reckon that's not me. I don't see his glory. So my prayer for you today is that God would shine that light into your sin-darkened heart. And you can pray that and God will answer that prayer so that you and I can say with Blaise Pascal, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Jesus Christ, let me never be separated from him. May that be our heart's cry this morning. As Adam and the musicians come forward. You know, John is written to believers and unbelievers. Let me address the believers in the room. Most of you are believers here this morning. Belief is not like a, an off-on switch. You either have it or you don't. It's more like a dimmer switch, okay? Our belief can be sanctified. It can be strengthened like a muscle. It comes through beholding. That's the only way it comes. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us. It comes through beholding. My prayer is that you will behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. You can never be the same when you behold him. And as you behold him, and as you are enlightened in your spiritual eyes, here's what happens. He revives your soul and he rejoices your heart. That is my prayer for you. If that's where you are this morning and you're dull in your faith, that is your greatest need today. If you came in this morning and, and because of your dull affections, you, you're struggling in your marriage, your greatest need is not to hear a sermon on marriage. Your greatest need is to hear about the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then that will impact your marriage. It will impact everything. But maybe, just maybe, you have never seen God's glory in any way. He's just a, a concept for you that may be true, that maybe not. You're just maybe an agnostic at best. My prayer for you is that as we make our way through John 17 and as we consider what we looked at this morning, that what happened to Blaise Pascal and what's happened for 2,000 years of believers would happen to you and that you would behold his glory and that you would humble yourself and recognize Jesus Christ came and lived the life you couldn't live and died the death that you deserve and was raised that you might have justification forgiveness of sins. Won't you respond to him this morning 
as we stand and sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.